0: Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie. Today I'm joined by Dr. Colin M. Barn, author of Planes on Film 10 Favourite Aviation Films, a study of 10 different aviation themed films which have, in their own way, made a contribution to popular cinema. So, Colin, how did this book come about? Well, Tom, thank
1: you very much for inviting me to talk today. I've had a lifelong interest in aviation films and one of the pivotal experiences of my life was being taken to the Goldman Cinema in Greenwich by my father in 1964 to see 633 Squadron which incidentally was the first British war film to be made in both Panavision and colour. Over the next few years I saw a number of other classic aviation movies such as Flight of the Phoenix, Reach for the Sky, and The Dambusters, And in October 1969, I travelled to Glasgow with my parents to see the recently released epic Battle of Britain. Since the mid-1980s, I've been collecting a large number of magazines and books about the making of various aviation films. So when I started writing planes on film in 2016, most of the reference material I needed already existed within
0: the four walls of my house. One of the films that you cover in your book, and it's one which I'm sure will be familiar to many, is The Danbusters, a film which remains immensely popular more than 75 years after it first premiered. Why do you think it is that The Dambusters remains so popular with the British public? It's a deeply patriotic movie which strikes a chord with the British
1: public, In recent decades, various politicians have implied that we should be ashamed of what we achieved during the Second World War and that we should not be celebrating the victories of our armed forces. But The Dam Busters is a very human story of good triumphing over evil, of Britain's technological genius, of success against overwhelming odds. Watching this film you realise why the Allies won the Second World War. And the Dambusters theme is deeply moving. I can think of few other pieces of music that arouse emotions in the way that Eric Coates' Dambusters march does. That is not to say that the Dambusters is a perfect film. It is riddled with historical and technical errors. For example, the shot of the test bomb being dropped from a mosquito is actually wartime footage of the smaller version of the bouncing bomb, the highball, which was never used in action. Also, some of the
0: special effects seem a bit ropey by modern standards. And of course, in 2006, the respected New Zealand filmmaker, Peter Jackson, announced plans to remake the film. Why do you think that's been repeatedly postponed? A lot of pre-production work has been done, on the new
1: version of the Dambusters including the construction of 10 full-sized fiberglass replica Avro Lancasters for ground scenes and Peter Jackson has bought in a lot of period equipment including flat guns and one of the actual EEC Matador fuel bousers used at RAF Scampton in May 1943 and a screenplay by Stephen Fry was completed some years ago. Despite this, the film has been postponed several times. In interviews, Peter Jackson has repeatedly claimed that he intends to make the film one day, but so far, nothing has happened. My own theory is that the producers are afraid that the film may not be very successful, as it may fail to attract much interest at the all-important American box office for example both A Bridge Too Far and Battle of Britain which were both British films made with American money did very badly at the American box office and Battle of Britain only recently went into profit through repeated TV showings and DVD and Blu-ray sales so although I would love to see the new version of the Dambusters hit the cinemas,
0: I fear that it may never be made. I was also interested to see that you've covered 633 Squadron, a film which is a favourite to many and yet which a number of critics have come to regard as a poor man's Dambusters. How do you rate this film? Well 633 Squadron is actually one of my favourite
1: aviation films. The plot about a crack RAF squadron attacking a supposedly bomb-proof factory in a Norwegian fjord was supposedly inspired by the Dambusters but was also based on a number of real mosquito missions during the war. The author of the original 1956 novel Frederick E Smith was an air gunner in the RAF during the war. The 1964 film has some wonderful stunt flying sequences a great musical score by Ron Goodwin, and excellent photography. The full-scale special effects are also superb. For example, the scene where a shot-up mosquito hits a fuel bowser, and another where a mossy does a belly landing on an airfield were achieved using real aircraft. Three real mosquitoes were destroyed during the making of the film, something that would not be allowed nowadays As such aircraft are now regarded as priceless, irreplaceable artifacts worth millions of dollars. Where the film does fall down, though, is in some of its visual and miniature effects. The scene near the start of the movie, showing 12 mosquitoes flying in formation, which was achieved by multiplying an image of three aircraft, looks very phony, as do all the sequences towards the end showing mosquitoes being shot down. In some shots, you can actually see the wires holding up the miniatures and in one shot, you can see what appears to be masking tape on the wing of one of the model mosquitoes. Overall though, it is a very exciting film and one which I would rate as one of the great aviation movies as it does a wonderful footage of mosquitoes in action. Cliff Robertson who played the lead role of Wing Commander Roy Grant, had a private private's licence. He tried to buy one of the mosquitoes used in the film but wasn't allowed to do so and eventually purchased one of the
0: Spitfire Mark 9s which had been used in the longest day. 633 Squadron led to a further film about mosquito operations called Mosquito Squadron. How did that film come about? In
1: 1966, Mirish Films, who had made 633 Squadron, set up Oakmont Productions as a low-budget subsidiary with the intention that it would make war films with a budget not exceeding $1 million. The first of these films was Attack on the Iron Coast, which, though fictional, was based on Operation Chariot the real-life raid on Saint-Nazaire in March 1942. The best-known One production film, though, was the 1968 movie Mosquito Squadron, which was filmed at the same location as 633 Squadron, namely RAF Bovingdon, just a short distance from the MGM Studios at Borumwood, where both films were made. Four airworthy mosquitoes, and one static example were used in the filming of Mosquito Squadron and they had the same camouflage and markings as the planes used in 633 Squadron. This meant that a considerable amount of footage could be reused from the earlier production. David McCallum starred as squadron leader Quint Monroe, and the plot was like a combination of the Dambusters and the Amiens Raid as it involved mosquitoes using highball bouncing bombs to destroy an underground German weapons factory and also bring down the walls of a jail to enable Allied POWs to escape. Despite its cheap and cheerful feel, and the fact that it was obviously a low-budget rip-off of 633 Squadron, it is still a very enjoyable film. I would rate the film much higher than Pearl Harbour, Red Tails or Fly Boys, all of which
0: used horrible cartoony CGI. In your book, you've hailed the 1969 production Battle of Britain as the greatest aviation film ever made. What exactly led you to form this opinion? Battle of Britain is a
1: film which holds a number of records. Including RAF Museum Aircraft loaned to the film company, an aircraft used for spares. 128 aircraft were used in the production. No film before or since has used that many planes and the fleet assembled for the production in 1968 comprised the world's 35th largest air force. It's also very accurate. All the aircraft used in the production were converted and painted to look as much as possible like the 1940 originals. For example, most of the Spitfires used were late war variants, which had to be cosmetically modified by removing cannons and so on. The producers were fortunate to obtain the cooperation of the Spanish Air Force, which still operated Casa 2-111s, Spanish built versions of the Heinkel HE-111, powered by British Rolls-Royce Merlin engines. In addition, The Spaniards had recently retired a number of Hispano-Buchongs which were Spanish built versions of the Messerschmitt 109 again fitted with Merlin engines. 31 of the Spanish Heinkels and 18 Spanish-Hispano-Buchongs were used in the aerial scenes. The producers also acquired 12 airworthy Spitfires plus 15 others which could be used in ground and taxing scenes. Hurricanes were in short supply, but even so, six examples were used in the film, three of which could fly. The aerial sequences were filmed over a period of more than six months, between March and October 1968, in Spain, Britain and France. This was longer than anticipated and was largely caused by the poor weather in the summer of 1968, which delayed filming. As a result, the budget had to be increased from $15 million to $17 million, which is almost $300 million at today's prices, making it one of the most expensive films ever made. It is an incredibly realistic film. You might criticise some of the special effects today, but in 1969 they were about as good as you could get. Battle of Britain was also the first film to make extensive use of radio-controlled model aircraft, particularly in the Stuka scenes. Over 100 radio-controlled
0: aircraft were used in these sequences, which were largely filmed in Malta. In recent years, there have been a number of proposed films about the Battle of Britain, but most of them have never appeared.
1: Believe it or not, I know of four different proposed films about the Battle of Britain which have been mooted in the last decade or so. First of all, there has been The Few, a proposed movie about the life of Billy Fisk, an American who was killed while flying hurricanes in the Battle of Britain. This was to have starred Tom Cruise as Fisk and be directed by Michael Mann. The film was cancelled after Tom Cruise moved to another studio. And then some years ago, Robert Townes, the producer of the Faye Dunaway movie Chinatown, was reportedly involved in a new movie about the Battle of Britain. Nothing more has been heard about this for years. And then only last year, Ridley Scott, who directed Alien and Blade Runner, was supposed to be making a new movie about the Battle of Britain. And a few years ago, an organisation called Their Finest Hour was supposed to be planning a new film about the battle of Britain. They had a stand at the 2010 war and peace show, and that's a military vehicle rally in England, by the way, complete with one of the actual replica fiberglass hurricanes used for ground scenes in the 1969 battle of Britain film. However, none of these films have so far appeared. And I think the problem is purely financial. Even hiring one Spitfire or one Hurricane for a single day's filming can cost thousands of pounds, even tens of thousands of pounds. So you can imagine what it might cost to put a whole squadron of them into the air. In addition, there is a shortage of German aircraft. The producers of the 1969 Battle of Britain film were fortunate to have the youth of 31 Heinkels and 18 Messerschmitts and two Spanish built Junkers 52s which were all supplied by the Spanish Air Force. But in 2018, very few genuine German aircraft exist in airworthy condition. Currently, there are a few Messerschmitt 109s in airworthy condition, plus a few Hispano Buchongs. But in 2018, there is not a single Heinkel 111, Dornier 17, Junkers 88, Junkers 87 Stuka or Messerschmitt 110 in flyable condition anywhere in the world. So any new movie about the Battle of Britain would have to make extensive use of CGI, miniatures and full-scale mock-ups to depict most German aircraft. This would mean that any new movie about the Battle of Britain would be enormously expensive. A new movie about the Polish 303 squadron in the Battle of Britain called Hurricane recently premiered in some British cinemas but this production only used just one real hurricane with most scenes being achieved using CGI and fiberglass replica hurricanes. It was also a
0: low-cost production with a budget of just 10 million dollars. The 1950s and 60s might be regarded as a golden age of aviation films Because since then, there have been very few entries in the genre. What do you feel are the reasons for this? Again, it's all down to cost. Films
1: like Reach for the Sky, 633 Squadron, the Dambusters and Battle of Britain happened to be made at a time when it was possible to obtain aircraft at relatively little cost. For example, the four Mark VII Lancasters used in the Dambusters were obtained from an RAF maintenance unit and were scrapped soon after filming. 633 Squadron is another good example. At the time of filming, in the summer of 1963, the RAF had just retired its last mosquitoes. All the mosquitoes used in the film were supplied by a civilian anti-aircraft cooperation unit at Exeter All the units mosquitoes were retired in May 1963 and most of them are used in the film either as flying aircraft or as static or taxing aircraft for ground shots. The film's technical advisor retired group captain Hamish Mahadi, was able to buy airworthy mosquitoes for just £75 each and non-airworthy examples for £50 apiece. By comparison Nowadays, airworthy mosquitoes are worth between five and nine million dollars each. The 1990 film Memphis Bell deserves a place in aviation history because it was the last big aviation film using large numbers of real aircraft to be made in the UK. Again, the producers were fortunate that at the time of filming in 1989, there were three airworthy B-17s in Europe, one in the UK, the well-known Sally B based at Duxford, and two others in France, and this meant that only two further B-17s had to be flown over from the USA. Unfortunately, one of the two French B-17s was destroyed in an accident during the filming of Memphis Bell, and the other is no longer airworthy. The cost of operating vintage aircraft has also gone through the roof. The UK's sole airworthy B-17, Sally B, which was used in Memphis Bell has been threatened with grounding many times due to rising costs. So I don't think we will see large fleets of real aircraft in future aviation movies. Instead, they will tend to employ a small number of real aircraft and a lot of CGI. I mean, Let me give you an example. The original version of Catch-22, which was made in Mexico in 1969, used 17 airworthy B-25s plus one static example. The TV series remake, which had just been made and which starred George Clay, employed just two B-25s with the
0: rest being created by CGI. If Battle of Britain is generally regarded as one of the greatest British aviation films ever made, then surely Tora, Tora, Tora is almost certainly the most spectacular American air movie. Can you say a bit more about its production? Tora, Tora, Tora is indeed the most spectacular American aviation
1: movie ever made and it can be compared with Battle of Britain as it was also filmed in 1968 and employed a huge number of aircraft. Like Battle of Britain, it was not financially successful and never recouped its enormous production costs. In fact, the film nearly bankrupted 20th Century Fox. The biggest problem facing the filmmakers was a lack of Japanese aircraft. The script called for an attack on Pearl Harbour by a large fleet of Japanese planes. But by the mid-60s, when the film was planned, there wasn't a single Japanese World War II aircraft in flying condition anywhere in the world. There were a few zeros in museums, plus a single Val Dive bomber, but all were in a distinctly non-airworthy condition. And there wasn't a single key torpedo bomber anywhere in the world. One solution briefly considered by the filmmakers was to scour the Pacific Islands for wrecked Japanese aircraft and then use these carcasses to rebuild a fleet of authentic planes. But it was soon realised that this would be hugely expensive, time-consuming and impractical. In the world of aircraft restoration, such projects are feasible, but can take years, sometimes even decades, to reach fruition and can cost millions of dollars. Eventually, the filmmaker's main aviation advisor, Jack Canary, came up with a simpler plan, as he realised that two existing aircraft types, the North American AT-6 and the Vaulty BT-15 Valiant, which were both American World War II training planes, could be modified to resemble Zeros, Cates and valves. And the work was carried out by two firms in California. And eventually, 31 replica aircraft consisting of 12 Zeros, 10 Vals and 9 Keats were built for the production. These replica planes greatly added to the authenticity of the production. Of course, Tora 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 wasn't just an American film. It was actually two movies. One made in the mainland USA and Hawaii and another made in Japan, showing the Japanese point of view. The Japanese also constructed their own fleet of replica aircraft using conversion kits supplied from the USA and sets built in Japan included a full-size battleship and a large section of the aircraft carrier Akagi which were constructed over scaffolding as outdoor sets. When the two films were edited together, the result was very impressive although the movie didn't fare well at the box office, possibly because of all the anti-war sentiment which was prevalent at the time. The film also had a very positive legacy though, as many of the replica Japanese aircraft which were built for the film are still around today and have been used in many other films and TV productions,
0: such as War and Remembrance, Pearl Harbor and The Final Countdown. And I see you've included a chapter on Raid on Entebbe, a 1977 movie about the famous Israeli mission to rescue hostages from Entebbe Airport. Can you say a bit more about that? The July 1976
1: raid by Israeli commanders on Entebbe Airport, which resulted in the freeing of most of the hostages and the deaths of all the terrorists, was a very important moment in the fight against terrorism. Up to that point, Western governments had seemed paralysed by a wave of hijackings and didn't seem to know how to respond. The Israelis, though, were years ahead of every other nation in their approach to airport and airliner security. If the terrorists who carried out the 9-11 attacks had had to pass through Israeli-style airport security, then they would have been apprehended before they boarded the airliners and the devastating terrorist attacks would have been prevented. It was the Israelis who pioneered the use of armed guards and airliners, and as a result, there hasn't been a hijack of an Israeli airliner since 1968. Operation Thunderbolt, the July 1976 commander raid, involved a large squad of commanders flying thousands of miles to Uganda to free the hostages using four Lockheed C-130 Hercules transport aircraft which carried Land Rovers, a Mercedes limousine and some light armoured vehicles. It was such a stunning military achievement that it inspired several books, many documentaries and four films. The most recent of which was in Teby was released in May this year. The first of these films was Victory at Entebbe in late 1976 which was made on NTSC videotape but transferred to film for a cinema release in Europe. Despite an all-star cast including Kurt Douglas, Anthony Hopkins, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Dreyfus, it was a slow boring movie with very little action. However, A far better production was waiting in the wings, namely Raid on Entebbe which was filmed in California in November 1976. Like Victory at Entebbe, it was broadcast in the USA as a TV movie but it was shown as a cinema feature in Europe in early 1977. Unlike its dreary predecessor, this depiction of the Entebbe raid had a lot of action as it was made with the full cooperation of the US military which supplied C-130 Hercules aircraft, Ford M151 Jeeps and M113 armoured personnel carriers. In contemporary cinema posters it was described as the action in Tebby movie to make it stand out from its dreary predecessor. It also had a very good cast including Charles Bronson, John Saxon, Jack Borden and Peter Finch. A young James Woods also appears in the film as an Israeli soldier. The movie was directed by Irving Kirchner, who is best known for directing The Empire Strikes Back and Never Say Never Again. The following year, the Israelis produced their own account of the raid a film called Operation Thunderbolt. Although very authentic and made with the full cooperation of the Israeli forces, it wasn't as good as reading Tebe. In May 2018, a fourth film appeared about Operation Thunderbolt, titled simply Tebe. It was what I would describe as a politically correct retelling of the events of July 1976. The terrorists were portrayed in a very sympathetic manner while the Israelis seemed almost like the villains of the piece. The film featured all the things I hate about modern cinema. A script laced with political correctness, shaky camera work, washed out colour and horrible cartoony CGI. Scenes of the final Israeli assault in the airport terminal were totally ruined because shots of the attack were intercut with scenes of dance troop in Israel. This new film did not mention the role of light armoured vehicles in the commando assault and the destruction of the Ugandan Air Force MiGs, which was a very important part of the operation, was also not depicted. And the single Hercules aircraft which appeared in the film was almost silent Whereas, all, as all aviation enthusiasts know, a Rio Hercules is a very noisy aircraft. In my opinion, it is the worst film ever made about the Entebbe raid, and possibly one of the worst films ever made.
0: And I'm not surprised that it was savaged by the critics, and also bombed at the box office. I'm interested to see also that you have a chapter on Reach for the Sky, which is arguably one of the most famous British films ever made. What is it particularly about the film that appeals to you?
1: It's a very uplifting movie because it deals with one man's struggle against adversity and prejudice. One of my favourite scenes from the film isn't one of the aerial sequences. It is where Douglas Badder has an argument with an RAF administrator about the fact that the RAF won't give him any spares for his aircraft during the Battle of Britain because of some bureaucratic nonsense. And this perfectly mirrors my own personal experiences of all the faceless bureaucrats in the NHS and local government who seem to rule our lives. I think if local government was running the Battle of Britain they would want the RAF to
0: do a risk assessment before they shut down any enemy planes. Another film that you mention in your book is Flight of the Phoenix which is based on the book by Elliston Trevor. What is it you like so much about that film? I think this film has a great dramatic structure as it deals with the conflict between a group
1: of people who are put in an impossible situation. Their transport aircraft has crashed in the desert. They have no hope of being rescued and they have a limited water supply. Then one of the passengers, Dortman, played by Hardy Kruger comes up with a seemingly crazy plan to build a new single engine aircraft out of the wrecked cargo plane. Against all the odds, they succeed and fly to safety. I think the most exciting part of the film is the engine startup sequence where the pilot Frank Towns, played by James Stewart, tries to start the Pratt & Whitney 2000 engine of the newly completed craft. He only has a limited supply of Kaufman starter cartridges and it looks as though he is going to fail, but he finally succeeds. The tension in this scene is unbearable and every time I watch it, I'm in the edge of my seat. What is so interesting about this sequence is that it is a piece of Hollywood science. Yes, the Kaufman Starter System did exist and worked in the manner depicted but it was never fitted to the Fairchild C-82 packet the aircraft used in the film, which actually employed an electric starter, similar to that used in a car. In the original book, author Ellison Trevor described the cargo plane as being a Salmon Rees Skytruck 4, a fictional type which was powered by a liquid-cooled inline engine and used a Kaufman starter system. Apart from this one technical blip though, the film is very realistic. The realism extended to the Phoenix aircraft seen in the film. The Phoenix did exist as an actual flying aircraft based around an AT-6 Texan. And unfortunately, stunt pilot Paul Mance died when the Phoenix crashed during filming. The flying Phoenix scenes had to be completed using a North American O-47 aircraft, which was modified
0: to look as much as possible like the first Phoenix. And finally, let's talk a bit about The Blue Max, another famous and sometimes controversial film. What is it about this film that appealed to you when you wrote the book? The Blue
1: Max was filmed in the Republic of Ireland in the summer of 1965, using a fleet of replica World War I aircraft created especially for the movie. What is interesting about the film is that it was done entirely in camera. There isn't a single miniature mat, or back projection shot in the entire film. Thus, the sequence where two Fokker triplanes fly under the arches of a railway bridge was done for real and was just as dangerous as it looked. A lot of planning went into this sequence and the stunt pilot Derek Piggott knew that he would have to fly exactly through the centre of one of the narrow arches of the railway bridge. He achieved this by lining up his aircraft with two painted scaffolding poles which were planted in a field beyond the bridge. The same principle that is used in a simple rifle gun sight. As long as the further pole was exactly behind the nearer one. He knew he was lined up with the exact centre of the arch. He was helped by the fact that the aircraft used in this sequence, the well-known Fokker DR1 triplane, had a very narrow wingspan. Star George Peppard learned to fly for the film and flew some of the replica aircraft, but he was soon grounded by the insurers. All of the replica aircraft survived the filming and were used in a number of other World War I aviation movies which were filmed in Ireland. At least one of these replicas is owned by filmmaker Peter Jackson who
0: has expressed a desire to remake the film with more authentic aircraft. Well Colin, I know that certainly I learned a great deal about aviation cinema from reading your book and uh, there's no question about the fact that It's a study of the genre which really covers the entire gamut of aviation cinema, more or less from beginning to end. Thank you very much for joining us today. No, thank you, Tom. Planes and Film is available to buy, published by Extremis Publishing, from all good independent retailers and online booksellers worldwide. Thank you for joining us today. I hope that you'll tune in again soon.